Please turn, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14. And as you're turning, just a maybe a little bit of an echo onto the announcements Pastor John made. Uh, there is a member meeting next Sunday evening. I'd encourage all of you who are part of this church, all of you who have formally identified with this church, uh, to be there. Uh, young families, single adults, older families, uh, please come. Uh, we always try to be very intentional with that time. Uh, one of the things that we'll talk about is a new doctrinal statement for this church. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we'd like to talk you through that a bit. And no, we're not veering off of any historic Christian doctrines, so I'll give you the heads up. You don't need to come worried, uh, come expecting a good discussion. We're looking forward to that. Uh, and also, uh, just again, another word about next Sunday's service. Uh, you've heard a little bit now in the last uh, few weeks about a Q&A. Our basic goal is uh, to help you understand the book of the Bible that we're in all the more. And I know that sometimes when teachers teach the Bible, it raises some questions. And so we just want to give you an opportunity to ask those questions. And so um, you can see uh, the worship guide for the instructions on that. And what we'll do is come and at the end of the service, spend 10 or 15 minutes just asking some questions that are on your heart. Uh, I would ask you... Um, to actually ask questions during that time and to not make statements that look like questions. Um, so if you're really wanting to know something, then ask. Um, I'd also ask you to ask questions that can be a benefit to other people. Again, trying to understand the passage, not just maybe about a specific situation that's only true for you right now. Those things are probably best handled one-to-one. -one. But please, if there's anything that you have that you're wondering about that's come up so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, please ask. I think it'd be a benefit to all of us so that we can better understand this amazing book. So that'll be next Sunday. All right, Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 7, 14. Please follow along as I read. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I've entitled this message, Wisdom for the Difficulties of Life. Wisdom for the Difficulties of Life. Living in the world that we live in is helped when we have some wisdom, how to navigate this situation or that situation rightly. Wisdom is needed for this life. Life isn't easy. Wisdom can help. Knowledge is out there to be found. You have car trouble? Go to YouTube, enter the problem, and watch someone walk you through how to fix it. It's really a rather amazing thing. There's knowledge out there that makes life a little bit easier, a little bit easier to navigate. You can get wisdom about managing money from experts in managing money. You can get wisdom for navigating this situation, that situation. It's out there and it's available and it's a blessing from God. The Bible exhorts us to prize wisdom, to pursue wisdom, and to treasure wisdom. Learn, 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 learn. Get wisdom. Get the skill for living in this world. There's wisdom out there to be obtained. Ask people questions. Read things. Listen to things. Seek out wisdom. It's a gift from God. The Bible provides wisdom for dealing with all sorts of circumstances in life. The Bible provides wisdom for dealing with foolish people. The Bible provides wisdom for healing broken relationships. The Bible provides wisdom for salvation. God has given information to make us wise for salvation. The Bible is full of wisdom to navigate this world. So wisdom is a great blessing. Just common grace, everyday wisdom, how to fix that thing on our car, or wisdom for spiritual living in the world that we live in. There's all kinds of wisdom given, both in common grace given to the world and also to believers, wisdom from God given to help us navigate this spiritually dark world. So wisdom is a great blessing, and it's wonderful, but, and we're in Ecclesiastes, right? So as soon as we start to feel good about something, Solomon kind of rips it away from us. (laughs) But there are limits to wisdom. There are things you should know about seeking wisdom. Wisdom doesn't solve every problem perfectly. When it comes to wisdom, Solomon wants us to be aware of some things. Wisdom has limitations. Wisdom is difficult sometimes to take in. Wisdom can be squandered. We can have it and not use it or have it and forsake it. And wisdom can be a great blessing at the end of the day when coupled with trusting the Lord. So our outline for the morning is four realities to be aware of as you seek to live wisely. 
All of us want to live wisely. We want to do the right thing in different circumstances, different situations. We want to operate the right way spiritually in a dark world. We we want to do the right thing before God and before others. And that's great. And that's a gift from God that He provides those things. But there are some things we should know about wisdom. First, wisdom does not mean that you are God. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. These verses remind the reader that human wisdom won't raise us up to the level of God. It won't make us all wise. We can grow in wisdom, but we're not going to grow to the point where we're like, you know what, just a few more tidbits of info and I'm God. No way. He's all wise. He knows everything. End from the beginning. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. It's already been memorialized. It's already been declared. It's already happened in God's sight. Whatever has come to be has already been named. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what tomorrow is going to look like for everyone. He's ordained it. He's allowed certain things to happen. He's got a plan for it all. He knows. He sits above all of us. So in our pursuit of wisdom, We try to get information and get knowledge to rightly live, and that's good, but He's the one that's over everything. He's got all wisdom, capital W. So we can grow in wisdom, but it doesn't mean that we're God. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and He's not able to dispute with one stronger than He. Now, that one stronger than He is God. This is saying what's been known about The past, present, and future is in God's hands. He knows it all. And you, person seeking wisdom, are not in a place where you can ever contend with Him. Well, I've got this knowledge, so God, why are you doing this? There's never a time when we can rightly say that. We can't question Him in that regard. In fact, the more words, the more we do this, the more we question Him, the more vanity. The more words, the more vanity, verse 11. And what is the advantage to man? There's no advantage to that. What advantage to you is there when you argue with God? There's no advantage to that. No help that comes from that. God's all-knowing. We're not. Even as we grow in knowledge, grow in maturity, grow in wisdom, it never puts us in the place to question God. That's what Solomon's trying to show. So pursue wisdom. Get wisdom, he told his son in Proverbs. Go get it. But here, Ecclesiastes 6, but never think that you'll be in a place because of your wisdom to start contending with God. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man will be after him under the sun? There's no amount of wisdom that we could get that tells us exactly what life will be like in every single circumstance is beyond our days. He knows what comes after us. He knows the future. and He's given us insight into eternity that we can grab onto. But how and when and why, He knows it all. We get pieces of information that we can bank on and that are good for our soul, but He knows everything about everything in the future. So pursue wisdom But know that wisdom does not mean that we're God. Job brings up this exact point in Job 28. Turn there, if you will, Job 28. 
I think this is fitting because in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is showing us that, hey, this world is not satisfying. He he tries to navigate the reader through different parts of this world and to teach them how to view it and how to respond to it. It's a difficult world. Well, Job knows that as well. Job knows that this world is difficult. He's had his family taken from him. He's had his wealth taken from him. And to top it all off, he gets friends that come and give him counsel that tell him that the reason this all happened is because he's in sin. So he knows what difficulty in life is like, and he therefore then looks for wisdom. How do I get through this? How do I navigate this? Where's the wisdom to be found? Job 20, or 28, verse 20. Listen to what he says. From where then does wisdom come? And where's the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to, us, or when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. God's the inventor of wisdom. He used wisdom when he created. He knows how to live rightly. He knows how to view everything rightly. He's the one who is full of knowledge, has displayed knowledge in creation. He's the one that gives knowledge. And then verse 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So God creates wisdom. He uses wisdom to create the world. He knows everything. He's all wise. Man's looking for wisdom. And God says, okay, listen, you want wisdom? Sit down for a moment. Revere me. That's the start of wisdom. Look at me and be in awe of me. That's the beginning of wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Revere me, turn away from evil, that's what makes you wise. But you see here in Job, Job 28, he's searching for wisdom. He wants to know how to live in this difficult world, and that's understandable to us. And Job and also Solomon and Ecclesiastes say, the wisdom is good, the wisdom is a gift from God, but realize that God is the one over it all. Again, the inventor of wisdom, the giver of wisdom, the one who sees the end from the beginning. We might get little glimpses into our circumstances as we read the Scriptures and understand the mind of God all the more, but He knows it all. He knows everything, and that's good for us to remember. Wisdom does not mean that we're God. There's a second reality to be aware of when we seek to live wisely, and that's found in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, 1 through 6. Wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. Wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. Solomon's going to talk about funerals and also times when we're rebuked. I've never heard someone that says, you know what I love? Funerals. You know what I love? When someone sits me down and says, I need to tell you where you're wrong. I love that. Well, Solomon highlights that wisdom comes in those two moments. Wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. Verse 1 of chapter 7, 
A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. So right away, he starts by giving us some betters, okay? Notice you're going to see that in verse 1, a good name is better. Verse 2, it is better. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Down in verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. Why does Solomon repeat that word over and over again? Because you and I don't believe that. Hey, it's better for you to go to a funeral than a wedding. (laughs) I don't want to. Given the choice, I'll take the wedding. But it's better to go to the funeral. We don't naturally believe that, but Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is communicating, no, it's better for you to go to a funeral than a wedding. It's better to go and experience the day of death than it is to go and experience the birth of a baby. Because we learn some things when we're sobered by the difficulties of life. So better, better, better is repeated here. Because Solomon's trying to convince us that sometimes it's better for us to go through hard things to get wisdom and insight from God, to know God better, to understand life better, to be able to navigate then the rest of life better. It's better. Again, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. So it's better to have a good reputation than it is to be known for how good you smell. Now, okay, picture Israel during this time. Picture Israel during Jesus' time. I mean, picture life at any point in history without running water readily available. It didn't smell great. Most of the world and most of world history hasn't smelled good, all right? So to smell good is kind of taken for granted by us. Yeah, I shower every day and You've got some things to make me smell better, but they didn't shower every day. And so to smell good was a special thing. This says a good name is better than precious ointment. You might sit at the dinner party and smell good and, oh man, that gentleman smells good. That lady smells good. But how meaningless is it when you leave the dinner party, everyone looks at each other and says, I can't stand that guy. Do you know what she's like? A good name is far better than even smelling good. And the day of death, the idea, is better than the day of birth. The day of death, again, sobers us and makes us think. In the day of birth, we're simply celebrating, and it's good. He's not criticizing celebrating births. Birth is wonderful. The gift of children is a blessing in the Scriptures. But the day of death is better for us if we're going to think about getting wisdom. Again, the day of death sobers you. When you have the opportunity to go to a hospital or to go to a, 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 the home of someone who's just had a baby, that you go there and you're thankful, you're, you're joyful, you're, you're happy for them, but you don't learn a lot. When you go to a funeral and you're faced with that casket there, and you're faced with the reality that this person that we all love is not here right now. It makes you think, and that's what Solomon's trying to get at. Verse 2, he continues, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Better to go to a funeral than a party. For this is the end of all mankind. Why is it better? Because we're all going 
to be the center of attention at a funeral one day. We're all going to be. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Whenever you go to a funeral, there are two types of people. One, the person that just wants to get out of there as fast as possible because it's so uncomfortable. The other is the one that sits there sobered and thinking about their own life and their own mortality. And that's a good thing. In our culture, we want to remove death as far from us, if at all possible. People have stopped doing funerals in these last years. People have not accepted the call to go to a funeral. Uh, It's so negative. It's so sad. But it's so important, according to Scripture. It's sobering. If I can say this, Christians, have a funeral, please. Right here, and earlier in Ecclesiastes, we're told that it's better to go to these places because the living will take it to heart. You say you want to evangelize your family and friends, and and you want the gospel to be brought to them, and you pray for them, you pray for their souls, then have a funeral when you die so that they have to sit there and think, that's going to be me one day. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But we want to remove this from us. Why? Because we don't believe these words naturally. We don't believe Solomon. It's not better to go to a funeral. I don't want to go. I don't like it. I'd rather, I'd rather work for Pete's sake. I'd rather go to work. I'd rather sit in traffic. But it is better for us to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because it's the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now, it doesn't say sorrow is more enjoyable than laughter. It just says it's better. When we're sad, that's, that's the fertile soil for wisdom to come in. When we're laughing, there's no fertile soil for wisdom. We're just too happy to hear anything. But when we're sorrowful, we tend to ask questions and we tend to listen. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. When someone's countenance is brought down in a difficult season of life, it means that at some point they're going to benefit from this, and that's going to lead to a heart that's made glad. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't always happen in the moment. Sad face, oh, happy heart. But a sad face that prays, that ponders, that seeks help, that seeks counsel, eventually turns into a wise and happy heart. Bitterness often comes before sweetness, and sweetness is made all the more sweet when it's preceded by bitterness. Bitterness often precedes sweetness in life. Certainly, we know that Jesus taught this to His disciples. He taught them that bitterness comes before sweetness. He taught them that the cross comes before the crown. That was His path, and that's our path. He was very clear about that to His disciples. And so, it's good for us to learn from the difficult seasons of life. It's good for us to learn when we're sorrowful, not because God's mean, but because He's good. He leads us through sorrow into joy, and that makes the joy all the more sweet. 
Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Just looking for the next party, the next place to just be happy, to just avoid the difficulties of life. Let's just avoid it all, avoid it all. Let's just laugh and tell jokes. Nothing wrong with laughter, nothing wrong with telling jokes, nothing wrong with joy. But if you're only pursuing those things and trying to avoid learning from pain and discomfort, be careful. God's lessons are often taught in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. Wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. There's another uncomfortable setting where wisdom comes. Verses 5 to 6, it comes when we're rebuked. Verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Better, again, for someone to hear the rebuke of the wise. Now, how many of you love those phone calls? hey, uh, can we meet for lunch? (laughs) I think I know what's coming. Can you just tell me right now, please? Those aren't comfortable. Sometimes we avoid those. But when the wise comes to bring a rebuke, Solomon says it's better for us than if we simply heard people singing frivolous songs. Better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And then he says this, he gives an illustration. For as the crackling of thorns, thorns in the Bible are worthless. Thorns in the Bible are thrown away. Thorns in the Bible are burned. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of fools. This also is vanity. The laughter of fools is like the crackling of thorns. The foolish man is the worthless man. They're just laughing about life, laughing about this, laughing about that, never taking anything seriously, giving very little thoughts to God, not thinking about life, death, the future. They're just laughing their way through life, and they don't know that they're about to be burned. That's what Solomon's saying. So listen to the rebukes. Listen to the things that God teaches you. Listen to the things that sting in His Word. Listen to wise people bring you correction. It's a blessing. It is a blessing. God often communicates wisdom through other people that bring us rebukes, that bring us correction. Didn't say it's pleasant. I said that it profits. It's not comfortable. It produces character and growth. So wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. Now, Again, let's think of what's happening in Ecclesiastes. Solomon's looking at all different things in the world, money, work, relationships, and he's saying if we try to find satisfaction in any of that, we will be dissatisfied. That's not where to find satisfaction. This world is hard to navigate. It's difficult. And then he says, but there's wisdom available. Just know that it comes in difficult settings. God's given us the ability to understand how to navigate certain circumstances. It's going to be uncomfortable sometimes, but God's given that. Now, here's where I ask the question, now what difference does Jesus make though? That's all well and good for an Old Testament crowd before Jesus came to earth, 
So what am I to learn there? Okay, life is difficult. God's given some wisdom. Okay, I'll, I'll try to kind of navigate this world rightly. Then enter Jesus. What happened when Jesus came? What happened with wisdom when Jesus came? Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. So, as you're turning, what what a common grace gift from God to give wisdom, to give knowledge for how to meander through life, to make good decisions about life. What a gift that is. It is a gift to know how to navigate things, to know how to handle relationships, to know how to handle money. It's a gift from God. But there's another gift of wisdom that God has given to the world that's available to the world, and Christians actually have it. 1 Corinthians 1, as you know, because we looked at 1 Corinthians in the last book, the Corinthian church was so fixated on being wise by worldly standards. I don't want to lose credibility with the world now that I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be thought of as a fool in the eyes of my unbelieving family and friends. I mean, I don't want my boss or people in the marketplace to think I'm stupid now. And so, Christians are trying to still hold on to that worldly philosophy and still trying to receive an an acceptable audience with the world. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You want to know what the all-wise God has done? He's made the foolish things in the world, like you and me, actually wise. He's made us wise to salvation. And so, the world looks down on us as fools, but we're actually wise. God has gifted us. Notice what he says in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of Him, now that Him is important, that's speaking of God the Father. Because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Get what's happening here. Jesus comes into the earth comes to the earth. Why? Because God sent him to the earth. Why did God send him to the earth? So that you and I would get capital W wisdom. We would get God's wisdom. We would see this world, oh my goodness, clearly. I see this world through the eyes of God. I see this world as God sees it. Oh my goodness, I know what separates man from God. It's sin. Oh my goodness, I know how to be right with God. He's given us that wisdom for salvation. Oh my goodness, I see the Son of God and why He's so important and that He came from me. Oh my goodness, I see in Jesus that I can have eternal life. Oh, wait a second. I see in Jesus how to love other people even who are unlovely. I see in Jesus how to serve other people. I see in Jesus how to hold on through the suffering and to come out with eternal life. I see this all in Jesus. Why do we have that? Because God the Father gave that to us as a gift in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're a Christian, you are, this is the understatement of the year, you are an extremely privileged person. We have the wisdom of God for ourselves in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't stop there. Because of Him, because of the Father, you and I are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness from God. This is all from God. 
In Jesus, God has given us the righteousness that we need to rest forever in His presence. In Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. In Jesus, we've been given sanctification from God. God took us out of darkness, a dark world going down the toilet, grabbed us out, set us apart for His purposes. In Jesus, God did that for us. We're a privileged people. And it didn't stop there. And He also freed us. He came and unlocked the shackles. Slaves to Satan and his will, slaves to darkness. He unlocked all that and made us free. Do you know this? You don't have to sin if you're a Christian. You don't have to. The shackles have been taken off. The freedom has been given. That's what the word redemption means. He purchased us out of darkness, brought us into light, made us free. If you're a Christian, you're free. He did all of that through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the ultimate wise one. So in Ecclesiastes, we're seeing what a gift. God's given us wisdom to navigate the world. And then because of Jesus, now on this side of the cross, we see, oh my goodness, that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. I see clearly because of what He means, because of what, who He is, because of who He is, and God has given that to us as a gift. So it's one thing to say God gives wisdom. Hey, you want to know how to handle money? God gives that wisdom. What a good God, and that's true. You want to know how to have eternal life? You want to know how to have the forgiveness of your sins? You want to know how to have redemption, holiness? You want to know how to have righteousness? God's gifted you this gift of wisdom that is Jesus Christ. God is a good giver of gifts, namely His Son, Jesus Christ. Back to Ecclesiastes. So God is a good giver of wisdom, and He often gives it in difficult settings. Death, He gives it in rebuke. But it's when we're faced with death, it's when we're given a rebuke that we often listen better than if we're just parting along. Just before we go to the next point, I wanted to read you this. I found it encouraging. Richard Cecil is a pastor in England. He was friends with William Wilberforce, friends with John Newton. Cecil wrote a work on the day of mourning, on funerals, on uh, those times of sadness when we gather together. And he asked the question, how are you going to meet that crisis that you will face with peace? How do you meet death? Look at it straight in the face, and it's only inches away. How do you meet that with peace? I love what Cecil said. He said, you must know this. Sin is your disorder. Sin is your disease. Sin is your sickness. Christ is your physician. Christ is your healer. The disease of sin you have has been dealt with by Christ the physician. You have been made spiritually healthy in Christ. That's how you face death. He says, pain is your medicine, the Bible is your support, the grave is your bed, and death itself is like an angel, a messenger, expressly sent to release the worn out laborer and crown the faithful soldier. So how do you face 
feelings of your own mortality? How do you face the idea of thinking about your death, which for some of you could come this year? Every year of this church, we've been doing funerals. So in this room, the likelihood is that one or more of you will face that day. How do you face it with peace? You admit and you know, I'm sick because of my sin. But Jesus, your grace is greater than my sin. You are the great physician. You are the healer. I rest there. And I know that the coffin will be the bed for my body. And I know that you will bring me home to be with you in death. Death, therefore, is graduation. Death, therefore, is the beginning of something new with God. You face it with confidence knowing that your sin's been dealt with. It's good to remember that. You can think about your coming death, your coming funeral with hope because God has made known the fact that there is a solution to death. It's found in Jesus Christ, His Son. Praise the Lord for that. Honestly, think about this. We are the people on the planet that can go to a funeral and mourn and also rejoice because of what Christ has done. He came to save people from eternal death. We can find confidence there. So let death preach. Let death preach. I was at a funeral over the last couple years, and after the funeral was over, I was standing next to a man in his late 20s. He had lived a troubled life, really lived a foolish life, was was not in a good place himself, and uh, I was just standing in a group of maybe five people, and he was talking, and he said this. He said, you know, I don't know if I've ever been to a funeral before, and it broke my heart because funerals teach wisdom. Funerals grab you, grab your face, and say, you have to look at this for a moment. You have to think about this, and that affects life. It's not comfortable to be at a funeral. It's not comfortable to be in the place of rebuke, but it is often where God gives us wisdom. It's often where people's lives are turned around, where people trust in the Lord. So just know that. Let death preach. Let rebukes have their effect. There's a third reality Solomon wants us to be aware of as we try to use wisdom in life, and it's this. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, wisdom can be foolishly discarded. So Solomon prizes wisdom in this passage. Wisdom is good. We'll see that at the end of the passage too. Wisdom's good. It protects. It makes you secure. Wisdom's helpful. But sometimes we have wisdom at our fingertips and we throw it away and act like fools. And Solomon's going to tell us three reasons that we do that. It's rather fascinating. The first is this. Sometimes we throw away wisdom that God has given us and we act like fools because of a love of money. 7-7, seven, seven. surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So again, like Solomon's done before, he's looking at people with power and wealth and he looks at people who oppress others under them, mistreat others, the rich oppressing the poor, someone with authority oppressing those they're meant to serve using them. So power has corrupted this person who would otherwise be wise. They probably got to the place of power because of wisdom. 
And now they use that power to oppress others and act like fools. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and oftentimes power and money go hand in hand in Ecclesiastes. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So you've got a powerful official who's oppressing those underneath him, foolish. He was wise. He's got wisdom at his fingertips, but he's acting like a fool. And he's taking a bribe so that he doesn't execute justice. He doesn't lead rightly. He doesn't govern justly, but he governs in the way that gets him the most money. Now, on paper, a lot of wisdom. Harvard, went to law school at Stanford. I mean, just knows a lot, excellent in his field. Now he governs, he's wealthy, he's thought of as this wise person, but when he starts oppressing people and doing things for money, he's a fool. What are we to learn from that? Well, I'm never going to Harvard. Well, don't, no big deal to me. I don't have a lot of you from Stanford. No, no, no. Is there any way that being in charge has caused you to use the people under your care? Dads? Moms? Employers? teachers, any way that leadership, which means that you should be living wisely, leadership has caused you to actually hurt, harm, not serve those under you. You're acting foolishly. You've got the opportunity to use wisdom to help a people, but you're actually living foolishly. Wisdom can be foolishly discarded. Have you ever had the opportunity to get more money, maybe in a way that's not the best, but you really want that money because of what it can do. That's the time when we often act foolishly. Be careful of the power, be careful of the love of money. They often go hand in hand. Wisdom can be foolishly discarded because of there's a love of money. Again, I mentioned this last week, Mark 4, Jesus teaching His disciples. Guys, here is a reason that some people drift off and drift away, turn away from following Jesus, from following me. Here's one reason. Because of the love of money. Because of the love of the things of the world. So you start on, on this path of wisdom, following Christ. That, that's a wise path. And then the love of money, the love of power, the love of something else causes you to drift off. Leads to foolishness. There's a second way that we often discard wisdom, and that's in anger. Verses 8 and 9, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So again, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This, this is telling us, listen, sometimes you have to let things play themselves out, because you know who's in charge of the chessboard? Not you. God is. God's making His moves. Now, you want Him to make this move right now, today, so that this can be done with. But He says, I'm not there right now. I've got other purposes. Better is the end of a thing in the hands of God than its beginning. And the patient in spirit, the one who can sit and wait through a trial, trusting in God, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, Right here, what's the opposite of patience? Impatience. 
But Solomon doesn't say that. Better is the patient in spirit than the not impatient, better than the proud in spirit. For Solomon in this verse, the opposite of patience is pride. So we're patient through trials. That's wise. When we start to become arrogant and think, I'm going to end this thing. I'm going to manipulate this thing. God, this is what needs to happen right now. This is what... Not only is it impatient, it's also proud. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning, and the patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Sometimes, because we're so upset about a matter, and we try to get it to end, or we try to fix it, or manipulate it, whatever it may be, we start acting like fools. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. This is a hasty anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Again, get, get the overall context here. Solomon's saying, listen, God's given wisdom. You can have wisdom to live through life with, to help you go through life. But sometimes we've got wisdom at our fingertips and we throw it away and we actually become fools. One example of that is when we get angry. We get hastily angry. You can be a knowledgeable person, be an expert in a certain field, and when you fly off the handle as a regular pattern in life, you're a fool. It's foolish. Quick, hasty, hot-tempered anger is not prized in the Scriptures. It's connected to foolishness. Again, a person may know a lot. They might be smart. But when they can't control their anger, there's a certain level of foolishness there. We don't use wisdom when we fly off the handle. Third, buckle up. When's another situation that we throw away wisdom? When we become, when we become nostalgic. Verse 10, don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, some people say things like, can you believe the state of the world today? When I was growing up, it was like this. Why is it like this? Do you know that there are people out there that say things like that? <laughs> They're like in Las Vegas or something or Idaho. Don't say that. Don't continue operating that way. It's foolish. Why is it foolish? Because we romanticize the past. There were problems in the past that we often overlook because we like other parts of the past. Why is it also foolish? Because today's not as bad as it could be and there's evidences of grace all around us. God is still gracious today. There are evidences of grace all around us. Some things in life do get better. Sometimes God blesses a later generation in certain areas. It's foolish to lump one whole society in one big ball and to analyze it and say, this is what it all is. No, it's multifaceted. There are so many things that are worse, but there are a number of things that are better. Here's another reason it's foolish. 
We learn this from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. There's a time for everything in God's plan. God had a plan in the 50s. He has a plan in 2023. He's doing things. He's allowing certain things to happen for His glory. He brings blessing in a dark world in certain areas for His glory. God's actively involved in every single point of human history. So we start to take yesterday and wrap it up and say, that was always awesome. This is always bad. That's foolish. It's not true. Now, I brought along a friend with me, Charles Bridges. Charles Bridges, pastor in the 1800s. He's got a thing or two to teach us. He comments on these verses, and I think it's helpful. I know it's helpful to me. Let's listen to Chuck for a moment, okay? This rebuke is evidently directed against the dissatisfied spirit, which puts aside our present blessings, exaggerates our evils, and reflects upon the rule of God as full of inequalities and upon His providence in having cast us in such evil times. There's a certain criticism of God and a distrust of His providence. National changes, he says, may bring national declension. Increasing wealth and luxury may relax the tone of public morals. This happened in Solomon's day, right? In Solomon's day, there was great wealth. We talked about this last week. Great wealth, great opportunities. Money is a blessing when used wisely. This is good, but oftentimes that leads to moral failure. You know this about human history, right? Look at any civilization. When they prosper financially, get ready morally for a downturn. This is what happens even in Solomon's day. National changes may bring national declension. Increasing wealth and luxury may relax the tone of public morals. But it may be asked, is it not the ordinary habit of the old men and of the generation to give undue worth and weight to the records of bygone days? So, Charles Bridges is rebuking the old men here, not me, okay? But he says there's a certain type of person that just sits around and just talks about the goodness of the past. That's all they do. Yet in a general view, God has been always good, and men have always been bad, and there's nothing new under the sun. After all, it's folly to cry out about the badness of the times when there is so much more reason to complain about the hardness and the badness of our hearts. If men's hearts were better, the times would be mended. If our hearts were better, our times would be mended. And when there is such reason to be thankful, they are, not, they are, are they not worse? The question has been well asked. If the times are bad, what are we doing to mend them? Have not we helped to make them bad? And do not murmuring and complaints make them worse? If we could change clouds for sunshine, if we could say, let's take the clouds of this society and culture and bring in the sunshine, it, this is under my control now, not God's. I'm going to remove all these things that are bad, and I'm going to bring all these things that are good. Bridget says, can we change clouds for sunshine? Would it be for our real good? Is not the arrangement of the infinitely wise and gracious Father more our true advantage 
than the dictates of poor human folly? As soon as we think we would do it differently, what are we saying? God's not doing it rightly. Be careful. That's not wisdom that's speaking. It was not our lot to be born in former times and in supposed better times. But surely it is our duty to gather all good out of the seeming evil of today. Murmurers and complainers belong to every age. Leave God's work to Him and let us attend our own work, which is not so much to change the world but to change ourselves and to serve our own generation by the will of God. And let the badness of the age in which we live make us more wise, more circumspect, more humble. And then he ends with this. Brighter days are before us. Each day is brightened with the hope of a near-coming salvation. O Christian, salvation is near. I think some of you remember last summer when Pastor Bobby came from California while I was away and he preached and one of the exhortations he had was, don't just sit around saying everything is so bad all the time. Look at the good things that are happening. Look at where God is working. Yes, there are evils of today. There have always been evils. Leave it to Beaver wasn't perfect. Eddie Haskell was there. Some of you get that joke. Others of you, sorry. There was always bad. God was always good. Today, there's plenty of bad. God is still good. And I think that Christians of today that do care about morality, do care about righteousness, which is a good thing, we can often become complainers without any action. So we sit around the porch and just complain about this person, that person, this elected official, that businessman, that lady, that situation, that church, that this. We just sit and complain and say, the, th yesterday was better than today. Why is it like this? And we go back home, wake up the next day, come back to the same porch with the same people and complain about the same things. When God has given us a commission, God has given us life in our hands to give to other people. God has called us to do something about it. It's okay to be upset at sin in the world, but it's not okay to just be upset about sin in the world. We've been given the ministry of the gospel to bring to people, and that changes lives. Someone brought it to you and it changed your life. So let's not sit and just complain about where we're at. It's not wisdom that does this. Let's look to serve the Lord, bring Christ to our generation. That's wise. Because after all, it's what Jesus told us to do right as he left to go back to heaven. Nostalgia sometimes makes us foolish. So wisdom can be foolishly discarded. A love of money will discard wisdom. Anger will discard wisdom. Nostalgia will discard wisdom. And fourth and finally, and this is more encouraging, wisdom coupled with trust in God is a great blessing. Wisdom coupled with trust in God is a blessing. These verses will extol the benefits of wisdom. And there's again a reminder that we are not God. God has made the times. 
There's a certain trust that should accompany living wisely. There's a certain trust. So listen, we're not living wisely so that we avoid all pain and suffering. We're not living wisely so that we can get as much money as possible. We're living wisely because we want to rightly, as God's people, do what is best in each situation. We want to live wisely there. But then there's a limit. We live wisely, we do our best in certain situations, and then there's a limit and we just let God be God. So God, I will do the best in this situation, but my days are in your hands. And that's a good place for them to be. That's what Solomon's saying. Verse 11, wisdom is good. Now notice all the blessings of wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Verse 12, wisdom is protection. Verse 12, it's advantage. Verse 12, it preserves life. So he's talking about the benefits of wisdom here. Wisdom is good, again, verse 11, with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, those who are alive. So here he says, if you've got an inheritance, if you've got some resources, if you've got some wealth, and you've got wisdom, that's good. Now again, from Ecclesiastes, don't become a lover of money. Don't let that be your main pursuit, because that'll be your downfall. But if you simply enjoy God's gifts and you're wise, there's an advantage there. That's good to those who see the sun, to those who are alive. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. So there's a certain protection money can give, there's a certain protection wisdom can give, and the advantage of knowledge or wisdom is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom's better than money. Wisdom can preserve life. Wisdom makes you wise, again, in a New Testament way of speaking, wise unto salvation. So wisdom is good. It's an advantage. It protects, preserves life. Verse 13, consider the work of God. So that there's a change between verses 11 and 12 and 13. 11 and 12, wisdom is good, wisdom is good, wisdom is good, wisdom is good. Verse 13, now consider the work of God. Okay, so you keep going after wisdom. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But now consider God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? That's not speaking of a moral crookedness. It's just saying, if God has made something to be one way, who can change it to being another way? What's the answer? No one. This is Solomon saying, you be wise. It's an advantage to be wise. But God has plans, and God's plans will come to fruition. So be wise, but recognize there's a limit. God is all wise. Reminds us really of the first point earlier on in the passage. Verse 14, so what do we do with all this? Wisdom is a good gift. We're to use it. It's an advantage. At the end of the day, we rest knowing that God's plan is going to be done. God knows what He's doing. God's guiding the times. I can't change that. I don't want to try to change that. Here's how we respond. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Isn't this a common refrain, right? Enjoy God's gifts. When He gives you gifts, thank the Lord and enjoy them from His hand. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, think now, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made certain days for us to be days where there's praise and joyful thanksgiving, enjoying His good gifts, and sometimes in the blink of an eye, tragedy can strike. God is sovereign over that too, and He knows how He's going to use that in the end. 
He knows what he's doing. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out. He's put two different days in your path, the happy days and the hard days. And he's done that, and you won't know what's coming. You don't know what that leads to, but he does, and you can trust that. You can rest there. You can hold on to the Romans 8.28 promise, right? All good things will work out for his people. You know that. And that's what he's saying. You might know, might not know how it's all going to work out, but you do know that it will work out in his sovereign plan. Wisdom coupled with trust in God is a great blessing. And sometimes these two types of days happen immediately, right? The change happens. We're celebrating one minute, and then the next minute we get that phone call. You're out having a barbecue with friends, you're in the backyard, and you're laughing, and, and everything's good, and then you, you get a call, you pick up the phone, and you've lost someone close to you. Joy, pain. What do you do? How do you navigate life? It's right here in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Enjoy the barbecue. Enjoy your family and friends. Be thankful for it all. And when the adversity does come, think. God is doing this for a reason. I trust Him. I trust Him. I don't know why. I don't know where it's going. I don't know, but I trust Him. My days are in His hands. That's what verse 14 is calling us to. Be joyful in prosperity. Trust God in adversity. So God's given us a gift of wisdom, friends. We need to remember some things about it, though. First, wisdom does not mean we're God. Second, wisdom comes in uncomfortable settings. Third, wisdom can be foolishly discarded. And fourth, wisdom coupled with trust in God is a blessing. The prayer I've been praying this week for you in response to this passage is for a certain patience and rest in the goodness of God. He's given you ways to navigate life, but at the end of the day, there will still be difficulty, still be hardship, still be sorrow, still be trouble. I pray for your heart that when those times come, you can say, God, my days are in your hands, and I'm okay with that. It's a good place for them to be. Horatius Bonner wrote a hymn to this effect. Listen to these two verses as we close. Maybe this could be a prayer that you pray to the Lord. Your way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, Lead me by your own hand. Choose out the path for me. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. You choose for me, my God, so that I shall walk aright. It is good, let me say this, it is good for you to rest your marriage, your career, your money, your family, your life, your everything into the hands of God who's all wise and knows the end from the beginning and is for his people. Rest in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not only the wisdom that you give us, but for the fact that you are all wise, all knowing, and you always do what is best for your children. Sometimes, Father, we don't feel that, but I pray that you'd make us feel it because we believe it from your word. We've seen you bring us through valleys to mountaintops. Give us wisdom 
Give us trust in you. Give us patience. Give us rest. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you not only for knowing everything, but also for loving us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.